I have heard God's word read with more authority than you have read it this morning. Wow. Wow. Touches this old preacher's heart. Thank you. And to hear these beautiful prayers uttered by Cindy, later by Becky and Kay this morning, and all the lay people that come to the pulpit of God and lift up the voice of the people, and has been so beautifully said in his remarks, in his sermon earlier, that is the spirit of this church. And that is what this church has stood for for 65 years, and that is what this church is going to do into a purposeful future. I'm going to see if I can't outline the cliff note version of God's salvation history. Strap in, y'all, because we're going to go fast. God created the human and placed the human in a garden of delight and gave that incredible commandment. Come eat. Come eat. You may eat. And if you don't remember anything else about biblical faith, remember that. And I'd say that's the one commandment of God, second be people obey, come and eat. But we took matters into our own hands and that wasn't enough. We wanted to eat of that one tree that would make us God. It wasn't enough for us to be the creature. There was something about this power that God imparted to us. God dealt us a hand and we didn't play the hand right we wanted to take the place of God. And so we ate of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Look, some days I get to thinking that I know all the mysteries of what is right and what is wrong. If you'll just ask me, I'll give you chapter and verse about every right decision. Not only in my own life, but also in yours and in the life of your church. And by the way, in the life of every other church, that is, I want to be God instead of God's son. And so we were, by our own choice, placed outside this garden of delight. The Bible story is spot on. And we became nomads wandering the earth, but... God has redemption even for the rejected, the self-rejected, what my colleague Hardy Clemens used to call self-tackleization. Is that not the perfect term for human sinfulness? Self-tackleization. Let that sink in. And so Abram is wandering around Mesopotamia, 1400 miles between the Tigris and the Euphrates. He's a complete nobody. He doesn't have a nation. He doesn't have an identity. He doesn't have any kind of heritage or legacy. And here comes God choosing this nomad saying, not only am I going to make a great nation out of you, your descendants are going to be more numerous than the stars. Here's an old man past child conceiving age. Here is a woman, Sarah, past child bearing age. Nothing is impossible with this imaginative God. And Abram walks 1400 miles over to a land and starts settling that land and worshiping Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, 
And then there is Moses. By that time, I'm moving fast here. The children of Israel had been taken into slavery. God raised up. Talk about rejected. Talk about despised. Talk about the bottom rung of the ladder. And God raises up Moses to this first prophet to announce the word of God in such a way that Pharaoh let his people, God's people, go. And then they wandered a little more. They're making their way, their 40 year way through that wilderness to that long promised place. And one of the pivotal chapters in this salvation history is that the leader of the people did not get to cross the Jordan over into the long promised place. And I think one of the takeaways, I don't understand all the mystery of that chapter, but one of the takeaways is there's only one true leader, and it's not Moses. And it's not whoever in the flesh we look to to be our Savior. It is only the one who is our Savior. And Moses dies without entering the, na the nation, the land, the land flowing with milk and honey. Before long, the people forsake God one more time. Self-tackleization. God commands them to worship him in a tent that can be folded up to the next place. But what they want to do is build a temple made with human hands that they think is eternal in the heavens. Their flesh, their ego... Their creation, their construction, all of our plans. And not only that, God wanted to be their king, but they wanted a human king. Somebody that they could touch and feel. Somebody with a crown. Somebody with a scepter. Somebody with a sword. Somebody with a throne. And that's what they did. And so the stories of Saul and David and Solomon and all those other kings. But what, what do we remember about those stories? Not their moral and spiritual heroism. What we remember about those kings is their moral failure. And that's what the Bible writes down. And if they continue in their foolishness, so said the prophets, God is going to do something about that all over again. They wanted military might and they wanted political power and they wanted economic wealth and they wanted to crush the poor in order to get it. And God raised up prophets to say, if you continue down this road, you will be exiled from God, from each other and from your national identity. And that is precisely what happened. And folks from that land of Mesopotamia came over, the Persians. Nebuchadnezzar and took those Israelites into captivity. And they lost their identity, they lost their heritage, they lost everything that was precious to them. Their whole character was dissipated and destroyed. But God wasn't finished with them yet. I hope this is ringing some bell for you. I hope that the salvation story of God is resonating with your own story because if you're anything like me you've had chapters in your life where you feel so washed up that God is finished with you completely washed his hands of you done with you 
and the book is closed. But here comes, in the fullness of time, as Nancy so beautifully said to our children, a powerful young rabbi, so full of God's joy and God's imagination that he was the God-bearer. So completely, fantastically submissive to the word and will of God that he made that word become flesh and dwell among us so that we could behold God's glory the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. And as Nancy so wonderfully said, taught us the way of love and light and inclusiveness and joy, particularly for those on the margins, particularly for those who were outcasts, for those who had been rejected because in this rule of God, in this kingdom of God, everybody gets to be redeemed. Not just the chosen, not just the clique, not just the in crowd, but the salvation of God is for all flesh, as those prophets said 700 years earlier. And here is the prophet, and they want to build some kind of edifice to him. You remember the transfiguration story. Let's build another temple right here, right now. Oh, Jesus says, we're going to go down off this mountain. And we're going to go back in Lubbock. And back in these neighborhoods. And back in these villages. We've got a word of love to announce to all these people. And so Peter, if you will remember from about four Sundays ago, understands finally... That what Jesus is bringing isn't the restoration of the Davidic rule. It's not the old monarchy where of money and power and fame. It's not all that flesh. It's not some kind of nationalism. It is a different kind of rule, a different kind of kingdom, a different order, a new being, a new creation. It's what Martin Luther King called the beloved community. It is not something made with human hands. It is not of the flesh, if you will. This is not something that's ego-driven. This isn't some politician stepping forward saying, I'm the, I, you know, look to me and I'll solve all your problems. This is a rule that is brought by God in God's own timing that is eternal in the heavens not made by our fallen fleshly puny small outlook and Peter says is this all we get is this it we've dropped everything to follow you what do we have to show for it if you'll go back to chapter 20 in the concluding verses you'll see that chapter 19 or 20 it, what do we have to show for this this isn't what I've been taught that's going to happen in the salvation history story and instead of beating Peter over the head he says that reminds me of a story he tells one story then he tells another story then he tells another story and as David read a few moments ago it reminds me of yet another story Jesus said, these parables of the kingdom. There was a landowner. And the landowner had a marvelous imagination. And he saw a piece of land and he planted a vineyard. Now, I don't know if y'all know much about vineyards. 
you got vineyards around here about 30 years ago, 40 years ago, some folks started planting them, right? On these plains, there wasn't any vineyards out here. But somebody came out here and started planting these vines. And now they've grown. And they've been cultivated and now our region produces some of the best wine in the country. Well, there was a landowner like that. And he planted a vineyard. It takes a long time for those for that fruit to develop and mature. I don't know a lot about it, but you can't just make a harvest overnight and start, and start producing good wine. The landowner had this imagination. He placed it into fruition. He built a fence around his vineyard. He called in the best vintners that he could find, these, these tenants, and they started making good, good grapes. He put in a wine press. He's producing his own wine. I mean, the parable doesn't, Jesus, you know, he may have stored the wine, so forth. And he built a watchtower so that he could keep the intruding uh, thieves from coming in. But then the landowner wanted his produce. And he sent slaves to receive the harvest. And the people who were simply stewarding the land thought they were owners of the land, thought they were large and in charge. And they started asserting their flesh. And they started, why, this landowner's been gone a long time. We've been doing all the work. And so they beat these slaves. They put some of them to death. Landowner heard about this. And he said, I'm going to send them another bunch. He sends in another bunch of emissaries to get his harvest, to get his produce. They do the same thing. And then he says, surely if I send my son, the heir of my entire fortune, they will submit to my son and see my own authority, the authority of the landowner. And what do they do? They put even the landowner's son to death. And then Jesus pivots and he quotes Psalms 119. And he says, the stone that was rejected became the cornerstone. The rejected becomes the redeemed in God's world. And every time I read this verse, I think of Michelangelo searching high and low in northern Italy for exactly the precise, perfect piece of rock from which he would hew and carve and sculpt that incredible, indescribable, majestic creation, the David, the statue of David that is in Florence and many of you have seen it and you walk in and you turn, you go in that door and you walk down the hall and you see that incredible specimen of humanity. And David searched and searched and searched and did not find the piece of marble that was suitable for what was already created inside the artist's imagination until one day he was walking past the construction of the church in Florence, the cathedral, and he saw a piece of rock that the builders had discarded because it did not fit the space. And they had put it over on the trash heap. And Michelangelo said, aha, there is my raw material from which I will create the new human, the David. This is what God is do, has done in Christ. 
This is what God is doing in us. He is taking that which is discarded, that which is abused, that which is rejected, and he's bringing his marvelous redemption out of it. Paul puts it perfectly. Paul, being a Pharisee, can understand this is why we have a marvelous pastor in Paul and why we have these epistles along with the Gospels. In our lectionary readings, pay attention to both because they're connected. The bishops and the pastors put this list together a long time ago. Jesus wants to include even the Pharisees in this marvelous tent and net of love, but they wouldn't have it. They wouldn't see it. They couldn't see it. The forest for the trees because they thought that they were the creator instead of the creature. And Paul says in his epistle to the Philippians, look, I was once in that kind of foolishness. I had those kind of credentials. And he lists seven ways that his pharisaical credentials that he thought those credentials put him in right relationship with God, choosing the, word, the perfect number, seven, the perfect number. Why, I was circumcised on the eighth day, which simply meant that regardless of what day the little Jewish boy was born, if you wait eight days, then at least that baby will live to celebrate a Sabbath, a Shabbat. That's what that means. Circumcised on the eighth day. Of the tribe of Benjamin, the beloved tribe of Benjamin. Uh, of, the, of the nation of Israel. A Hebrew of Hebrews, which means of all the Hebrews that ever were, I'm the best Hebrew of all the Hebrews that ever lived. A Pharisee. A persecutor of the church. And according to the rules, completely blameless. And then Paul turns and he says, you know what that gets me? That gets me absolutely nothing. And he uses the Greek word skibola, which translated properly is a word we cannot say in church. <laughs> if you will think, and I'm going to try to do this delicately. If you will think about barnyard waste, and if you will think about the, let's just say colloquialism that ranchers use, you will have the right term. I count all of that as baloney. Starts with a B, right? I count all of that as rubbish. I count all of that as garbage. I count all of that as sheer waste compared to the high, lofty, unsurpassed knowledge of Jesus the Christ. In another place, he says, I know nothing but Christ. In this culture of gnosis, of Gnosticism in Greco-Roman culture, I know nothing but Christ and him crucified. Jesus is all Paul needs. Jesus is all Peter and the disciples need. Jesus is all we need. We have Jesus. We have everything that we could ever hope to be. This is what Jesus is trying to impart. This is the message that he has to us. 
This is the word of inclusiveness that everybody is, has a place, that everybody can come to this table. It, finish then thy new creation, pure and spotless, let us be. Let's come into the garden all over again. God placed us in a garden at the beginning. God's going to give us a garden at the end. We're going to sit down at a table together. But it's got to be that God is God and we're not. We are the creature. God is the creator. God is our heavenly parent and makes and gives a place for all of us. The church is a vehicle to that. It's not an end in itself. There'll be a new creation, a new heaven and a new earth. And the first heaven and the first earth will pass away. And the new Jerusalem will come down out of heaven prepared as a bride for a groom. Y'all, they don't call it faith for nothing. And it ain't what you can see. It's what we reach for. And you know what we have to leave behind according to Paul? You and I have always thought we leave behind all of our moral failures and all of our flops and foibles and all of our, the times when uh, we fell flat on our face. That's not what Paul means. You know what he leaves behind? All the ways that he's tries to be God. All of his credentials, all of his goodness. Blamelessness under the law. Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised on the eighth day. All of those expressions of the flesh. That's what he has to leave behind. To press forward to a new day in Jesus. I hope we can too. I hope we can press forward in, to a new day in Jesus our Christ, our long-awaited one. I'm thinking this morning about Cormac McCarthy, the powerful Texas novelist. I'm thinking in particular about his cowboy trilogy. Some of you have read that. McCarthy was an incredible storyteller. He went on to write after the Cowboy Trilogy, The Road, it was a movie was made out of it, a dark, dark, post-apocalyptic story. Wrote No Country for Old Men, they made a movie out of that also. But he wrote a, three stories about cowboy culture. To him, the young cowboy uh, before automation sort of represented this freedom and this joy and this kind of world of possibility and he wrote three stories the um, uh, all the pretty horses and the crossing and cities of the plain quoting the book of Genesis Sodom and Gomorrah were cities of the plain and I'm thinking about a, a little scene out of the final book of that trilogy cities of the plain following Billy Parham, who now is an old aging cowboy. And I want you to think as I tell this illustration about some cowboys you've seen even here in Lubbock who are, they're 
their knuckles are gnarled and their skin is tanned and the liniments of their face and a life of really hard work and, and yet you can kind of envision them at 16 and 18 on these wonderful West Texas ranches having grown up before modernity. Billy Parham is an old man like one of those cowboys in this scene. Uh, he goes from ranch to ranch. He's lost his livelihood, automation, the tractor. Things have changed. The horse culture no longer exists like it used to. The horse representing that creature of majestic nobility and again liberation and, and muscularity and all of this possibility of, uh, sort of a symbol of of virility and power, if you will. All that's gone away. Billy Parham is old. He's in his 60s now. And there is a young ranch family that takes him in on their ranch right outside Clovis, New Mexico. He's poor, he's homeless, he's wandering aimlessly. He doesn't have a place. He's lost his identity. His best friend has died. He's forlorn. He's without anything to hold on to. He's out in the barn and the young woman walks out and says, Mr. Parham, come in and sit down with us at the table. And he says to the young ranch woman, I don't know why you mess with me. I don't know why you put up with me. And she says, and this is the second to the last page of that last book in that cowboy trilogy, Mr. Parham, I know who you are. And I know where you've come from. Come in. Sit down. And eat your supper. I think that's what God is saying to us. I know who you are. I know all your wandering. I know where you've come from. Just come on in. Sit down. Let me love you. Eat. And be a part of my family. Rejected, yes. But redeemed, yes. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. It's always my joy to extend the invitation of Christ to anyone who would come. Whosoever will may come. If today uh, you have established your faith in Christ maybe you have done that in your private prayer and now you want to stand before people of Christ to affirm and announce your faith we invite you to come if you would unite as a Christian believer with this fellowship let me tell you something we need you we need you now more than ever giving your individual gifts to the collective gifts of this community the invitation come in Sit down at table with us and eat as we stand and sing.